When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am chatting with Libby Grant about The Prophet's Wife. Libby writes literary fiction, especially in historical settings. Under her pen name, Olivia Hawker, she is a Washington Post bestseller and a finalist for the Washington State Book Award and the Willa Literary Award for Historical Fiction. Libby lives in the San Juan Islands with her husband, Paul. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, Libby. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here, and your book was completely fascinating, so I cannot wait to talk about it. Oh, great. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the names you write under. So you write under your own name, Libby Grant, but you also write as Olivia Hawker? Yes, that's correct. So how did that come about? Well, uh, when I first started publishing, I started out in self-publishing. I had been trying to find a publisher and an agent and everything. It wasn't going so well, so I just said, you know what? If my books aren't right for the market, somebody out there wants to read them. (laughs) So I just self-published them. And to my surprise, I built up an audience pretty quickly that way. It was was a a wonderful surprise (laughs) after so many rejections from publishers. And I was publishing under a pen name for my self-published stuff, which was Libby Hawker. Long story short, I started working with one of my publishers, Lake Union Publishing, and they had me start the Olivia Hawker pen name for them. So they kind of could draw a little bit from the audience I'd already built up with my indie work with the Hawker last name. So that was our sort of compromise we made to create this new identity for Lake Union. And so then when you decided to work with William Morrow, you went ahead and went with your own name? Yes, that's correct. How is it working with two different publishers? Uh, You know, sometimes it gets a little busy. I definitely have had times when deadlines have conflicted for both of them. (laughs) And I've had to scramble a little bit to make sure I could, you know, meet all of my obligations for editing and proofreading and all that stuff for both publishers. But on the whole, it's been okay. I've enjoyed it. I'm very fortunate to get to write full time. So I have, you know, eight hours a day to deal with this stuff if I need to. (laughs) So that helps a lot to be able to schedule myself accordingly. That's not something I was super familiar with, but I feel like recently I've interviewed at least three or four authors that have been doing that, and I just don't recall in the past authors working with multiple publishers. 
Yeah, I think it's getting a little more common nowadays. I think some publishers are starting to get a little bit more competitive about the terms that they offer authors. And so I think it's getting a little easier for them to kind of tempt each other, tempt each other's uh, lists away from one another. So I think you do see authors uh, eventually crossing over to other publishers and working with them for a few books or working with multiple publishers at the same time as I've been doing. Yes, definitely. Because I can think of at least two or three other authors that are doing exactly what you're doing, where they're working simultaneously with two different publishers on different books. And I think, oh my gosh, my head would be spinning. (laughs) It does kind of make your head spin sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Let's dive into your current book that we're here to talk about today, which is The Prophet's Wife. Why don't you just give a quick summary for those that won't have read it yet? Sure. The Prophet's Wife is a historical novel, so it is fiction, but it's based very closely on true events. And those are all the events surrounding the creation and the the early years of the Latter-day Saint religion, also known as the Mormons. So that's sort of where I drew all the inspiration from. It's such a fascinating story. There was so much like wild action that happened. (laughs) So many interesting events that all surrounded this creation of this religion. And I just found it so intriguing and so fascinating when I was reading about it. I thought, oh, I have to do this as a novel. I absolutely have to. So you grew up in that church, correct? I did. Yeah, I was. Uh, my family has long, long ties to the LDS Church. My ancestors joined the church at Fayette, New York, which was very early in the church's history uh, when there were only about you know maybe a hundred people total who were members. Yeah, my family had been with it ever since, and uh, I'm the first generation myself and some of my cousins to have left the church voluntarily. So otherwise, it was a very Mormon family for many generations. Well, you preempted my next question. I was going to ask if you were still a member of the church. Ah, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how do you think your book is going to be received by people that are still members of the church? You know, that's an interesting question. I initially thought that it was going to not be received especially well, because with all of my historical fiction, I've always been very dedicated to really sticking to recorded facts as much as possible. And when you're talking about something like the founding of a religion, There's a lot of subjectivity that comes into that, a lot of people's personal experiences, and that can take you off the path of recorded, concrete, objective facts quite a bit. So because I knew I wanted to stick with objectivity as much as I was able to and to stick with, you know, primary sources and things like that, I figured, you know, some people are going to be unhappy with my portrayal of this, but I have to do what I feel is the right way to portray this as a work of historical fiction with the emphasis on historical and historicity. But, you know, to my surprise, I have actually had a few people who've read it already who are still members of the church and who, even if they didn't necessarily agree with all the points I was making or with some of the takes I took on some of the characters, they at least appreciated that it was clear that I had done a lot of thorough research and that I was trying to represent everyone involved in this story as humans, you know, like everyone is just very human and no one is a a superman or a superwoman. No one stands above anybody else and no one is infallible in this story. Everyone is very emotionally friable (laughs) in this tale. And I think even though it's not necessarily the, the take that some true believing members of the church want to see on this history, I think they at least can tell that I put a lot of thought and care into it. And then I didn't just have an agenda. You know, I wasn't just like, I'm going to tell you what I think of this church. Instead, I was just like, look, these are the historical events that happened. And this is a very human drama. 
Absolutely. You're not setting out to expose anyone or create some kind of high-profile drama. Like you said, you've just done your research and you're trying to lay out what you think happened based on the stuff that you found when you researched. Yeah, that's correct. It's an interesting story. And I mean, obviously, I was familiar with Joseph Smith and the digging up of the plates and everything, but I didn't really know much about him personally. So it was really interesting to read more of that and just to kind of see how it all got started. Yeah, I'm glad you found it interesting. It is a really fascinating sort of confluence of a lot of different, really interesting influences that that all affected Joseph and the people around him at the same time. His family roots were in Appalachian folk magic, and that goes back to some really important occult practices in medieval England and medieval Europe. And um, those things sort of converged with this wild spirit of revivalism that was in the Northeast States at the time. And it just created this fascinating syncretism between Christianity and occultism, really. And I just, ah, oh, gosh, I thought that was so interesting. I just couldn't get enough of reading about it and the influences it had on his thought and his philosophy and the way he would teach his followers and the writings he would leave to them. It was just, just endlessly fun and interesting to read about. I was completely unfamiliar with this religious fervor, I guess is a good word for it, that was happening during this time period when you're depicting like in Pennsylvania, all of these people who are very, very religious, but also, and I don't think this is really a spoiler, like where people were thinking there were things that they could dig up and people were telling them where to go and dig and all of that. Like I was completely unfamiliar with that. Yes. And that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this novel so much, because people will hear about the founding of the Mormon church of the LDS faith. And they'll say, oh, that's weird that he was out digging up treasure and using rocks to find out where treasure was buried. But like, here's the thing. Everyone was doing that in his time and place. Like it was the most normal, mundane thing in that region, in that culture. It was just like, yeah, that's what you do. If you want to find treasure, if you want to dig a well, you go get a water witch and they come out with their dowsing rod. And that was just the way it was. And I just thought that was so intriguing. And what a great setting to start a novel into among this like little kernel of folk magic that still exists in this one part of the United States. Yes, completely intriguing. I mean, if you dropped into that right now, you would be like, what is happening? Yeah. And it was just something I wasn't familiar with at all. So I loved that I learned about that. Oh, great. I'm so glad you enjoyed that part of it. That was one of my favorite parts of the book, too, was, was recreating that burned over district feel where everyone's just like going out on a Friday night to a revival out in someone's field and all these wild things are happening. And everyone's like, yep, yeah, somebody uh, resurrected themselves from the dead the other day. And now she's got a whole cult following or whatever. <laughs> it's just another day in the life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that was just normal. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you spent a long time researching. What was your researching like? Yeah, I did. I spent several years researching this book, actually, which it was my longest research project to date on any novel I've written. It was fun, though. It was so exciting. You know, I would start with one biography and read all the way through it and make a ton of notes. And then I would go through all the cite citations at the back of that one and find like a dozen more books I had to read. So, oh my gosh, I don't even know how many books I read for this one. I think it was like 20 or something like that. I just like kept falling down these rabbit holes and finding more of these really obscure history books and like people's thesis statement or thesis papers from, you know, a master's in Mormon culture or whatever. I just couldn't stop. <laughs> it's just so much fun to dive into it and really get around in the, the deep down roots of this whole culture and how it was founded. I really liked the way you portrayed Emma. You clearly had done a ton of research about her 
and almost inhabited her. But how did you feel about the decisions that she made and the life that she sort of created for herself? Oh, yeah. Great question. I uh, And first of all, thank you <laughs> for saying that you liked my portrayal of her. I appreciate that. I I would not have made the same choices that Emma made, for sure. I would have been out of there much, much sooner. And it was difficult to get into, like, to sympathize with her. You know, I wanted to really get into the question of why did she stay and tolerate this for so long? I was trying to solve that problem all the way through. You know, I think that's really kind of what the book is about for me is just exploring and trying to answer this question of what was her breaking point going to be? You know, where was the line that Joseph was finally going to cross where she was going to say, all right, you're done. No more of this. It had to be somewhere. And yet he just kept pushing this boundary and she kept allowing it. And I figured she had to have a reason why there had to be some motivation behind that. And it was like I said, not any of the choices I would have made if I'd been in those situations, but she made them. You know, she was a real person and these events really happened to her and they happened very closely to the way I portrayed them in the novel. So I just really was drawn by that compulsion to get into her head and understand why she did the things she did. And was it hard to sometimes write about her when it would be hard to understand what she was doing and why she did it? Yeah, sometimes it was. Sometimes I found myself very frustrated with her on occasion. <laughs> and I had to kind of remind myself, all right, I got I to gotta go back to my game plan for this book, which is to explore why she's doing this. And I can't just roll my eyes and be annoyed with her. I've got to, you know, put on my Emma hat and try to figure out plausibly what's going through her head right now. What, what influences are playing on her mind and her heart that are keeping her married to this path and to this man, you know? Yeah, it was it was sometimes a real challenge. She was probably one of the trickiest characters I've ever written in terms of making sure I stayed true to her voice as much as I could. Absolutely, because you're writing fiction, but you're writing fiction based on a real person. So it's not like you're creating a fictional character where you know it didn't actually happen. Instead, you're really talking about someone who lived this life. Can you imagine living with all those women? I can't. No, I cannot imagine it. And she truly professed in, in her later writings when she was an older woman, she claimed she did not know until, you know, the very last year that he was marrying these women until, until the point where she agreed to, well, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a point where she does something <laughs> to, to uh, sort of signal her consent to Joseph to marry other women. And until that point, she claimed she really did not realize that he was marrying all these other women. And I would just thought, how could you not have known? <laughs> like, what was what blinders was she putting on herself? And where did the necessity for that blindness come from? You know, what happened in her life? What kinds of traumas did she face that made her just go, I'm not going to see this. Like, I'm going to believe whatever he tells me about it and just keep going forward because I need to survive this situation. Yes, I need to stay in this life. And so I'm just going to have to put up with whatever's coming my way. Yeah. I don't know a ton about the Mormon church. There's kind of two, I don't know if it's sects or divisions or what you want to call it, some that follow Joseph Smith's tradition for a while where there were multiple wives, but then a, a huge group that doesn't believe in more than one marriage to a man, correct? Yes. The church is actually fractured into different factions a few times. And the very first schism that ever happened happens right at the end of my novel where there, there becomes a this conflict that, that rises up between Brigham Young and Emma. And eventually, as I explain in the author's note, Emma goes on to lead her own version of the church, which is now called the Community of Christ. 
But yes, there were several schisms within the church. And that was one of them, where now we have what's called the FLDS, or the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints, which is the one that we sort of famously know as the ones that continue to practice plural marriage today, and are mostly in smaller communities in like Arizona, some in Canada and Mexico as well. Okay. I knew that from reading the end of your book, but I thought maybe everybody else wouldn't, and that's not something I know all that much about. And so I think it's kind of interesting because I do think the Mormons unfairly get tied to this plurality of marriage kind of thing when most people aren't really practicing that. Right. Well, let me clarify that a little bit. As the apostate I am. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. I guess that's what I'm trying to ask is if you would just clarify it a little bit because I did read your author's note and I you know, I have friends actually that are Mormon and I, I know a little bit about the church, but I certainly don't know the history other than reading your book. Sure. Well, so modern day mainstream Latter-day Saints in in the church that everyone knows as the Mormon church do not practice plural marriage. That is true. The fact is a a central part of LDS culture and of the religion is sealing together families in the temple. And that includes sealing in marriage. And it is still permitted for men to be sealed to multiple women. So if, for example, a man marries one woman, and they're sealed in the temple and they get divorced later, or if the woman dies, he can go on to have another wife and can also be sealed to her. And that creates, effectively, polygamy in the afterlife. Now, you and I may believe in a different version of the afterlife from what most Latter-day Saints do, but to them this is very real, and it's a big part of their spirituality. So even though they are no longer practicing plural marriage in this world, Some of them do, in fact, have ceilings to multiple partners for time and eternity, which means they're going to be married to multiple people forever by their reckoning. Got it. And I guess that could happen on either side. I mean, if a man and a woman divorce and the woman remarries as well. I am real sorry to tell you this, but no, it only happens with men marrying women. (laughs) There are still a lot of problems (laughs) with the culture and the church. And that's one of the main reasons why I am no longer a member. Unfortunately, it's still has a long way to go in certain social justice areas, including the treatment of women. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Thank you for explaining (laughs) that, because it just helps me fill in a few gaps. Sure. No problem. So how do you feel about the Book of Mormon? You mean the musical? Uh Uh-huh. Sorry. I I just had to ask because I've seen it like five times and I love it, but I'm not Mormon. (laughs) So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. I love it so much. Um, I've gone to see it every time it's come through like a major city wherever I've been. If I've been traveling and it's in a nearby city, I will go out of my way to see it. I love it. It is a scream (laughs) to me. I think it's so wonderful and so clever. And there are even people who grew up in the culture know that there are these fun little like Easter eggs hidden within the music where they'll they'll have little snippets of like Mormon primary songs that we all grew up singing in Sunday school will just like pop up in the melody. And you're like, oh, I know that. I know that. <laughs> really? Okay. See, yeah. I did not know that. And I, like I said, I've seen it so many times. I love that opening song. Hello. That one, you know, I just listen to it every once in a while. It's so much fun. <laughs> See them all ringing the doorbell. So I was like, I have to ask her about this. It departs a little bit from the book, but I just wanted to know. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Spooky Mormon Hell Dream is my favorite thing in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. I'm glad we can bond over the Book of Mormon. And I guess my question was a little misleading because I should have said the Book of Mormon, the musical, because the Book of Mormon is what the the church's book is called. So sorry about that. (laughs) That's okay. What do you hope your readers take away from this book? Oh, boy. That's a great question. That's one I haven't even pondered on, which, you know, usually you should think about before you do an interview with anyone, because that's going to be what you get asked. What, <laughs> what do I think? My, what do I hope my readers take away from this book? I hope 
it inspires readers to think about what might go into the creation of something big, whether it's a religion, whether it's a social movement, anything like that. There are always personalities at play behind anything that, that becomes communal, like a religion or a movement and spreads to others. There are always people who are in there pushing and pulling at things subtly or not so subtly and trying to influence the direction of a, a communal working for their own reasons. And I just hope people are aware of that and think about, you know, who's pulling the strings in this scenario and why? What's their motivation behind stepping up as a leader of a, of a movement or of a religion? And it may not be anything nefarious. You know, people may have in the best motivations you could imagine for the things they do. In fact, I tried to portray Joseph that way in this book. I don't make him a bad guy. He's just very human and very tempted by things that tempt humans. And I hope that makes people stop and think about, you know, it's not a great idea to hang all your hopes on any one person. In fact, I actually start the book with a quote from Dune, which is one of my favorite books of all time, because the theme of Dune is sort of the same of, uh, you know, it's, it's not a good idea to set someone up as your messiah or as your prophet, because humans are humans, and they're always going to be fallible. And you referenced this a little bit earlier in our interview, but also there's going to be myths and, th and stories that are larger than life that surround the founding of any religion and any movement most of the time. And so trying to go back and separate the myth from the man or the myth from the foundation of the religion can be difficult. Yeah, for sure. It, it really can. There's a lot to unpack and a lot to untangle there. And I'm really grateful to the works of a few excellent biographers and historians that helped sort of guide me through this research process. Some, some listeners out there will not be surprised and will be dismayed to hear that I based a lot of this on a biography called No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. It's a very controversial book among Mormons, among Latter-day Saints. It's also one of the finest works of historical scholarship I've ever read in any field. Fawn Brody was one of the greatest historians who's ever lived, in my opinion. She was so thorough and so insightful and so careful to cite her sources that it was really just, it painted such a broadly human and descriptive picture of Joseph Smith, who he was and what influences were working on him during that time. I could not have written this book without Fawn Brody writing her biography first. It just wouldn't have been possible. And who was she? I mean, I understand she was his biographer, but like, was she just a historian? Was she somebody in the Mormon church? Like what got her interested in Joseph Smith? Yeah, she was a faithful believer. She was all the way in. <laughs> she was gung-ho for Mormonism. And she was just a very curious soul and really wanted to know about the history of her own culture and her own faith. And so um, she was in her 20s too. She was very young. So she really got into researching it. Because she was a faithful member of the church and, you know, was involved in the temple and everything and was in good standing with her bishop, she was able to get into these church archives and uh, get all the way into like records, journals, letters that people had written who were there, who knew Joseph Smith directly, and just did this unbelievable work of broad scholarship that examined not only the, the church itself and the people who were involved in founding it, but the broader culture of the burned over district and what was going on politically around them. I mean, it was just totally an incredible book to work from if you're a historical novelist and you need a good source. So I definitely am indebted to Fawn Brody. I could not have written this book without her work. She's amazing. What makes it controversial? I guess that was my question. I was assuming maybe she wasn't a member of the church and that's what people didn't like. But if she was a member of the church, what made people unhappy with her portrayal? 
Well, because she was so honest with it. So No Man Knows My History came out in the early 80s, I believe. And at that time, the church was not ready to acknowledge some of the fullness of its history. <laughs> they were still kind of dancing around the fact that, that plural marriage had happened at all, let alone that Smith had participated in it. They were dancing around some other unsavory details of you know, political goings-on that various members of the church had been involved in, including Smith. And they were especially not willing to acknowledge that there was anything other than mainstream Christian involved in the founding of this church, which is kind of wild if you know anything about the church itself. Like if you've grown up in that culture like I have, yeah, there's a lot about it that's not really in line with mainstream Christianity. But, you know, coming off the middle of the 20th century, Mormonism was really seeking to align itself politically with like the evangelical movement. And in order to do that, they had to really distance themselves from some of the more unique aspects of the culture, which included a lot of the folk magic that Smith was participating in. So, for example, the church didn't really want to acknowledge that he used seer stones to translate the Book of Mormon. They didn't want to acknowledge that he had this object he carried with him called the Jupiter Talisman, which features in my novel. There were a lot of things they just didn't want to touch because it was magic and it was occult, and they did not want people to think that this church was anything other than just Christianity, but also they have gotten the most recent version of Christianity directly from God. But there is a lot more in Mormonism. There is hermetic alchemy in it. I mean, it's it's hermeticism by way of Appalachian folk magic, and also Jesus is in there. It's, it's just a totally <laughs> unique culture and a unique religion, but they wanted the rest of the world to see them as just another version of Christianity. So because Fawn Brody was so detailed and so thorough in her sources, for exposing all this, they uh, got pretty upset about it, and they actually excommunicated her from her beloved church, which is really kind of sad. It's pretty tragic. That is sad. And I was going to ask you how they treated her after she wrote the book. So, okay, so they excommunicated her. Yes. And meanwhile, roughly around the same time, another biography of Smith came out by Richard Bushman called Rough Stone Rolling, which is also a good biography, but it, it really toes the line and it plays up to what the church wanted to hear. And uh, that guy won a bunch of awards and was lauded among the church for, <laughs> for writing a biography the way the church wanted it to play out. The story they wanted everyone to hear. Exactly. Yeah. Which is so interesting because that's something I talk all the time with authors about. There are so many of these stories that aren't well known. A lot of times it's women's stories. It all goes down to who tells the history. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to tell it through Emma's point of view too, because like, what would she have to say? You know, if she had if she had written her journals, I wish she had, but as far as we know, she didn't leave any kind of memoir or anything behind. Gosh, if she had written all this down, what I wouldn't give to know what she had to say about all this. <laughs> Absolutely. And when she knew stuff, you'd have been like, I knew you knew. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I love the cover. That actually really drew me to the book. Can you tell me a little bit about how it came about? <laughs> Boy, can I. <laughs> Did you already know anything about the cover before you asked me that question? <laughs> I didn't. I ask it almost all the time. But I figured because of this book and what it was about that maybe coming up with the cover was going to be a little trickier than other covers. It did prove to be rather tricky. So we did work on the cover design a little bit for a while. We bounced around some, some fun ideas and tried out some different designs. And I really wanted to use a portrait of Emma if we could but maybe obscure her a little bit in some creative way. And now the cover does show kind of part of her face with papers sort of overlying her mouth. So she's seeing, but she's not saying anything, right? She's kind of kept quiet. 
we originally used a different portrait of Emma for for that design. That portrait is in the public domain, which makes it legal to use for a book cover, but it hangs in a church museum. And I don't know what happened, but somehow the church found out that we were going to use that image for the cover. And they contacted my publisher and said, you can't use that image. And they said, well, we can because it's public domain. And they said, "Uh uh-uh, you can't use that image. So right as I was going on vacation, like after I thought we had everything finalized for this book, I finally got to take a vacation after like two years of the pandemic and everything. As I was leaving, I was on a ferry boat out of town and I got a frantic email from my editor and she was like, uh, there's a problem (laughs) with the cover. The church is not going to let us use that. She's like, we have to come up with a new cover because, you know, unspoken between the lines, she didn't say this out loud, but if the church wanted to raise a stink about it and drag us through court over the cover, they would have lost the case, but they have endless money to use (laughs) on fighting in court. So we were like, okay, we're changing the cover. Exactly. There's no need to go to court over that. The only issue would have been that it probably would have brought so much attention to your book. Yeah. (laughs) You were like, this is really worth it. Okay, let's go forward. No, but you know, that's why I always ask these cover questions because so much more sometimes goes into the cover than people realize. Yeah. And your story is particularly fascinating. So then you all had to find another portrait of Emma or is this just a portrait that looks like Emma? This is another portrait of Emma, one that's not on church property. So whoever at William Morrow in the design department is a genius. They're like, ha, we can use this one and they can't say boo about it. So so we used that one. And I was like, wow, well, that was a bullet dodge. That is really a great story. Well, I love it. And I've been on my big soapbox about all the historical fiction with women looking away. So I was very happy that she wasn't looking away. And of course, if you have a portrait, she's not (laughs) going to be. But I love it. And I just love the letters, you know, kind of in front of her face. And it's like mysterious looking. I just think it's a great cover. It really matches your book. I love it too. It turned out so beautifully. I'm so happy with the design work that Mara did. It's just a gorgeous cover. Does she have any letters left or does she have nothing that she wrote down? There are a few letters from her. There is a a journal she kept during, well, towards the end of her second marriage. So after she's no longer with Joseph, I won't spoil the book at all, but eventually she ends up no longer with him and she marries a different man years later. And uh, she did write some things about her life during that period of her life. If she wrote anything during her Joseph years, we don't have much. There are a couple of letters that she wrote to people. And a lot of things that other people wrote about her that, you know, she was leading various meetings of the Women's Society and doing various things around town and people recorded all that stuff. But we have almost nothing that she wrote about her own life. That's so interesting. You know, like you said earlier, if she kept a journal, and that's why I figured you would have mentioned letters if she had them from that time period. But it does make it a little more difficult to know exactly what she was thinking. Yeah, it really does. I had to totally you know, put together puzzle pieces and and work off of what other things had said about her and, you know, what else was going on within the community at the time. And what did I know concretely about her personality from the way other people had described her? Like, how would someone who people described in this way react in this situation? It was it was a lot of mental acrobatics. <laughs> that would be difficult. Well, what was the highlight of writing The Prophet's Wife? Uh, oh boy, I, I really enjoyed the whole process. I really felt like I got to let myself out of my cage and really go nuts on the prose in this one, which I enjoy doing. Um, I really love kind of prose forward writing. That's my favorite stuff to read. So it felt good to be able to do that in a book myself to really kind of kind of let myself strut a little bit and fan my peacock tail, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I like that analogy. <laughs> Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? 
I am. I haven't sold anything to any publishers yet, but I am working on a novel about Vincent Van Gogh right now, and I don't know if anyone's going to buy it. It's just an idea that I'm <laughs> that I'm working on. So we'll see if that goes anywhere. We'll kind of see what my publishers think. I love him, but I am sure he's so popular that someone will definitely want that. I would, I would think so, but you never know. The publishing industry is kind of funny that way. Sometimes they're like, nah, it's not that, it's not the right time for that story. But, you know, like you said, everybody knows who Van Gogh was and everyone's curious about his life, right? He had such a fascinating, strange existence. So why not? Absolutely. And I do think that is difficult in the publishing world because there are trends and you don't know exactly when the trend is going to end. Yeah. And people think that they're not ready for such and such, but it feels like they're taking more chances these days. I feel like that I'm learning so much more about areas that I are people that I knew nothing about. Yeah, it's fun. I love that about historical fiction. I love to just get transported into a new place and, and you know, find some other culture for a while that doesn't look like my own. <laughs> That's what I always say about historical fiction, that it transports you to another time and place. And often, you know, you learn about a new person such as Emma in this situation that you just knew nothing about, but you're not reading a history treatise. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Story is much more exciting, I think. Yes. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh my gosh, I am on a tear with reading Catherine Davis, which if anybody else out there loves prose <laughs> as much as I do, she's great for that. But this author is like all prose and not much story. Uh, so you have to be you have to be in for like a weird atmospheric read. But I really love her stuff. And I just recently read a book her newest book called Silk Road, which is just fantastic, short and totally weird and just beautiful and fun to read. So I liked Silk Road a lot. What else did I read recently? Oh, I've been reading a book that's coming out soon. I think it's coming out in April, if I remember correctly. The author's name is Piper Hughley, and the title is By Her Own Design. And it is a historical novel about Anne Lowe, who was a designer in the 1950s to like the big fashion icons of the day. She was like making all those incredible clothes. It's such a great story. I'm just loving it. It's so wonderful. And Anne Lowe is a black woman who is primarily designing for all these like white superstars. So you can imagine the kind of interesting conflicts that were coming up there. So it's been a really great book and I can't wait till it comes out so people can, can see it. So I can see how people react to it. I love the history of fashion, which is weird because I don't dress fashionably myself at all. <laughs> but I find fashion so interesting, like as a cultural thing, as a cultural object. So um, anything about the history of fashion will get me for sure. So this one's this one's a good one. I haven't even heard of that. So now I'm going to have to go look it up. It sounds fascinating. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, I'm reading an arc. It's a galley for advanced reviews. So I can hopefully write a an endorsement for it, which I definitely will. And it's just a wonderful story. It's so gripping. And poor Anne goes through a lot, as you can imagine. <laughs> but <laughs> Piper's a fantastic writer. So it's really wonderful to read. It's a good one. Okay, good. That's one of the reasons I love to ask that question. I love to hear what people are reading and liking. But then I also will add all sorts of books to my list. Oh, yeah, you'll love this one. Well, Libby, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really, really enjoyed speaking with you. I enjoyed it too so much. Thank you. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. 
I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your shows. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.